You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, if we haven't met, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors, and we're going through a new series called Jesus, just looking at a different aspect of the character of Jesus, our uh, part of Jesus. And this week, we're looking at Jesus the Healer in John chapter 9, the text that, uh, part of the text that John, uh, Brian just read. So I want to invite you to turn to John 9 if you're not there. And uh, so much of this is about needing God's help. So can I pray for God to help us, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Lord Jesus, we recognize that there is uh, nothing special about this room. There's nothing special about this stage. There's nothing special about this pulpit or me. That there's something special about you. And we believe you've spoken through your word. And that your word comes alive through the power of the Spirit in our hearts as it's proclaimed boldly into our ears. And so um, we recognize that we are helpless and in need of you to help us. Show us the areas where we're missing things, a rebuke us of sin we might not even be aware of, encourage us in ways we need to be encouraged. I particularly pray for the person in the room right now who's going through a really tough time, a really tough season. They, they, they almost didn't even make it here this morning. God, would you even just give them one thing they can walk away with this morning and hold on to this week? And those who are the Christians who are killing it right now, God, help us to maintain a spirit of humility like this blind beggar we're about to see. Remind us of our brokenness. Put us down in our proper place, on our face before your throne. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you know about uh, two months ago I was in Israel. Uh, a, a church in Florida called Church 1122 was taking a group of leaders and church planners to Israel, and they basically they paid half my way to go. And I, they, when they asked me, I said, I'll pray about it. Yes, I'll go. Uh, you're going to pay for me to go to Israel. And they asked me to teach. And so I would have this opportunity to teach pastors and church planners in Israel. Pretty cool opportunity. So Sherry and I, uh, this is my beautiful wife. She usually comes to the 9, but you're blessed with her at the 11. Uh, we went together. And, uh, you know, everyone's been asking me, like, what stood out to you most about Israel? How was your trip to Israel? And, um, you know, I expected my answer to be, uh, I, was, I was blown away to be able to walk where Jesus walked, or to see the places that Jesus was at. Or to, I had the spiritual awakening or spiritual renewal, but to be honest, the thing that most stuck out to me about being in Israel, being the place where Jesus lived, was how dominated by Muslims it is. Like, everywhere is Arabic and Islam even like the historical biblical sites are controlled by Muslims. You go to uh, the Temple Mount where it says it said that Abraham uh, sacrificed Isaac and near where Jesus is said to have been crucified. You know, it's, there's a, a mosque on that mountain and you can't even bring your Bible onto there. You can only bring a Quran. It's just Muslim dominated. Uh, the Mount of Olives is in the middle of a Palestinian neighborhood. My dad was born half a mile from the Mount of Olives, which was just wild to think, like, my family is from here, and this is where Jesus resurrected. Uh, There's so many different sites where you're like, where are the Christians? Because there's so many Muslims. And (laughs) even, uh, it's the funny part, we we were walking by the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and there was an Arab man selling jewelry, and he looks exactly like you think he would like look like. Um, actually, I have a picture right here. Uh, you can put it on. Uh, yes. So this guy's selling jewelry by the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, my wife is like, let's buy some from our friends. And I'm like, why would we buy jewelry for our friends? Can we like get them a card? That's expensive. But she's like, no, let's buy it. And I talked to this guy and I asked him, uh, do you guys have an Arab discount for uh, this jewelry? I'm Palestinian. He's like, oh, what's your last name? Uh, I said, Mutasib. And he looks at me and he drops his jaw. He says, your last name's Mutasib? My last name's Mutasib. <laughs> to which I was like, there's zero chance this is real. So do I get that discount? <laughs> and so, yeah, we spent like $100 on jewelry. I was helping my family out. And uh, it's just crazy. Like, I'm in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's a mutasib selling jewelry. Um, my uncle, who I didn't even know existed, was in the middle of Palestine. He drove 30 minutes and sprinted 10 minutes to meet me before I left to go to the airport. So I'm like seeing all of this family. I'm seeing all the place my dad uh, was born, basically. Uh, I'm seeing all these Muslims, and I'm not even thinking about, like, the, the Bible stuff, to be honest with you. The predominant thought I left Israel with was, how in the world am I even here? Like, how am I teaching the Bible to a bunch of white Americans in the middle of Palestine? Like, the, the fact that I'm even here right now in the church, like, pastoring and teaching you is doesn't make any sense to me at all. I'm the only Christian in my entire family. And really the heart of that question is really the heart of the point in John chapter 9. How did any of us even end up here? How, how are we safe in Christ? Why does God love us? It doesn't make any sense. And 1 Corinthians 1 says that God chose what is despised in the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important, so that no one can boast in the presence of God. And so this is, John 9 is a really complex chapter with a really simple message that Jesus is a healer and he heals those who know they're spiritually sick. And so did you, can I just ask you, did you come in here this morning knowing you're spiritually sick and you can do nothing to save yourself. You need the healer. This is why God says he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. To be proud is to say, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. To be humble is to say, I can't do anything on my own. And if Jesus Christ were physically here this morning, he would not look at the people who looked the sharpest or had the highest IQ or had the nicest possessions or the coolest job or the highest leadership position in this church. The person he would look to and seek after is the person who most sought after him, who most yearned for him. Second Chronicles 16 says God, God's eyes look to and fro around the earth just looking for someone whose heart is humbly seeking after him. Are you desperately in need of him this morning? Did you come in here aware of your need, desperate for cleansing, desperate for his presence, or did you just come? You know, there's a theologian named A.W. Tozer that says, if God withdrew from the church, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. 
And I think you could say the same thing about Christians. If God like, just departed from your life, I think Tozer would say 95% of us wouldn't notice a difference. Because are we living with this humble need of I can't do anything without him? And this text is meant to juxtapose two different groups. You have the Pharisees who have everything. They, they look like the winners. They have the Bible memorized. They have all the answers to all the theological questions. They're financially secure. They have the respect of society. Their parents are so proud of them. My little boy grew up to be a Pharisee. They strut around town like they're the stuff. But then, juxtaposed to these Pharisees, is this blind beggar who is the definition of a person desperately in need. He's begging for food. He probably needs help going to the bathroom. His own family, we find out in the text, is disappointed in him and doesn't want anything to do with him. And society would have generally agreed that he got himself in his own position of being a blind beggar because because he was such a sinner. He was basically the worst case scenario of a first century life. So put it another way, there are two groups of people in this text, and really there are two groups of people in this room. There are those who are blind to their need and those who are blind and admit they're in need. You're either blind and in need or you're blind and admit that you have a need. And the central message of the passage is the quote of the blind beggar in verse 25. One thing I know this is all I know. This is all I got to offer. I was blind, but now I see, and it's because of him. And the only way to be a Christian, friend, if you're not a Christian, and really the only way to grow as a Christian, if you are a Christian, is to come to that same realization, to admit you're blind, you're not a superstar Pharisee, you don't impress anybody. If everyone saw really the crevices of your heart, they would be ashamed to know you. And all we can do to be made righteous before God and others is to throw ourselves on the grace of Jesus Christ and be healed by Him. He is our only boast. And the good news is that if you've fallen short this morning or this week, you feel like you're a bad spouse, you really let down your wife, your husband this week. If you feel like you're a bad parent, the kids were wild this week. If you feel like you're a bad kid and your parents are never pleased with you. If you feel like you're a bad employee or a bad employer. If you feel like you're a bad church member. If you feel like you're too ugly or too needy or too clumsy or too unwanted. If you feel like you're a bad Christian with too much sin, there's good news. Jesus wants you because he wanted this blind beggar who was just as bad if not worse than you are. He's pursuing you, and you're exactly the kind of person he wants at his table. In fact, in Luke 14, Jesus says when he throws parties, he invites the people the world doesn't want, the poor, the, the lame, the crippled, the needy. And so Jesus is throwing an eternal party, and to be invited, you have to admit you're needy. And you'll notice, this is all throughout the Gospels, that when there's a needy person like this blind beggar, they never go looking for Jesus. Oftentimes, Jesus comes looking for them. Why? Because struggling people, needy people, don't annoy Jesus. What annoys Jesus is self-seeking, arrogant people who think they're good without him. And the Bible is a story, is a story of stories of blind beggars chosen and used by God despite their deficiencies. Like Moses, who was a stutterer, who overthrew Pharaoh, who had an empire. Like Gideon, who was the weakest in his family, who overthrew, and he had, Gideon had 300 soldiers with flutes, and he overcame the Midianites, who had a battalion of more than 135,000 soldiers. David wasn't even invited to his own family's party, and Saul was Timothy Chalamet with muscles. Rahab was a prostitute, Jezebel was a queen. Everyone walked right by this beggar. No one paid him any mind, 
And everyone flocked to the Pharisees. Oh, they're so impressive. Can we have time with them? Can we hang out with them? They're so cool. And Jesus says, ah, you guys are missing it. This blind beggar's got it. Why? Because Isaiah 61, a prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament, says that Jesus came to proclaim good news to who? The poor. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, open prison to those who are bound, to comfort those who are mourning, and to give sight to who? The blind. And we see that come alive in John chapter 9. Translation, Jesus came for losers. And you can only come to him if you admit you're a loser spiritually. And he himself would appear as a loser. Jesus didn't, you know, Jesus was ugly. The Bible says Jesus was ugly. Kind of a harsh verse, but it's what it says. Jesus came from Podunk, Nazareth, which was said, what good comes from there? Jesus had people walk away in the middle of his sermons and say, I don't want anything to do with you. Jesus was crucified naked publicly on a mountain and then thrown into a grave. Jesus looked like a failure, but he wasn't. And so he recruits failures, resurrects them, and heals them and uses them to change the world, overcoming the strong things of the world. And so my question as we jump in is, are you a blind beggar or a proud Pharisee? And we can summer up this chapter, which has eight scenes. There's a lot here. We could cover a lot of different things, but I'm just going to summarize it with two points, two words. Humility and hope. Humility and hope. Gospel people are a people who are in need and have humility, and a people of hope who look to him, and he will renew their strength. First point, humility. If you jump in the checks, uh, chapter one, 9, verse 1, this t- chapter takes place by the Pool of Siloam in Jerusalem. Actually, I have a picture uh, of the Pool of Siloam. That's uh, me teaching there, and then you can go to the next slide. That's, that's literally the archaeological dig of the Pool of Siloam. That, actually, that excavator is from the first century, um, <laughs> excavated by Bob the Builder. Obviously not, no. The... the that bottom part is what the pool was. And uh, scholars say that this probably wasn't the nicest pool. So when you think pool, don't think like, you know, the rooftop merit pool where you're, you know, on the, on the skyline looking down at the peasants of Baltimore as people hand you tuna tartare and your kids are in childcare and you're sitting in the hot tub. That's not really the pool here. The pool here is more of like a community public pool where you're like 50% sure the person next to you is peeing, uh, but we're not talking about that. You know, it's just, it's kind of gross. You got all kinds of people there. It was known for uh, a place of ritual cleansing where people would bathe to make themselves clean, Romans and Jews. And verse 1 tells us that this man, blind from birth, is sitting near this pool. He's begging near this pool, and Jesus walks up to him. And uh, the disciples use this man as a conversation starter about a difficult theological topic. They, the disciples asked Jesus, is, is this man suffering caused by his parents' sin or his sin? And man, you know you got to have it rough when you're a conversation starter in the Bible on suffering. Why does this guy have a, such a rough life? The disciples ask. Now, I'm going to come back to answer that question at the end, but I want you to focus first on Jesus' heart and his compassion for the meek 
He instantly meets this man's need. Verse 6, he spits on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with that mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back saying, Why in the world would Jesus spit in the mud and then rub it on the guy's eyes? Why not just heal him right away? First reason, it was commonly taught by Romans and rabbis that saliva was a valid treatment for blindness. So Jesus is clearly indicating by using his saliva that his intent is to heal the blind man. So publicly it would be known. And then the second reason, I think, is that Jesus is looking to parallel the creation act in Genesis 1 and 2. That God created man, he created us from the dust, and Jesus heals blind men with the dust. Jesus is making a theological statement here. I am the God of Genesis 1. I make and heal man with my own power. And this obviously calls a stir. Uh, the people watching are dumbfounded. Verse 8, to the neighbors and those who had seen uh, the him before as a beggar were saying, is not the blind man who used to sit here and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, the blind man kept saying, I am that man. So the, the neighbors watching said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And the blind man answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And I just want, as we go through the text, I want you to notice how little this blind man knows. I mean, he would get zero dollars in jeopardy. Bible version. I mean, verse 12, they said to him, where is this Jesus who healed you? And the blind man said, I don't know. Pretty much every time this blind man talks, he says that. I don't know. Then come on the scene are the second group we talked about, the Pharisees. And they've just heard this blind man has been healed. And, you know, these guys are the hoity-toity religious know-it-alls. They, they have no needs. They're, they're the leaders. They're the solution. They have two ears and one mouth, but you'd think they'd have two mouths and one ear. And so they start interrogating this blind man because these guys think they can see everything. They refuse to believe. They, they refuse to believe that this unattractive false prophet from Nazareth named Jesus can actually heal blind men and that he's the Messiah and that they actually need his help. And I, I think what's happening here is I saw a video the other day of a chess expert in New York City and he was playing people in chess and just dominating. But then a woman in disguise, as a, she's a chess grandmaster, but she put on a disguise and she played this chess expert in New York City and beat him. And the chess expert saw what had happened because he had won over and over again and looked at the board and said, what just happened? And it, let's, she was like, let's play again. And the chess grandmaster, she again beat this chess expert. And he was like, what is going on? And the chess grandmaster unveiled her disguise, and the expert was like, oh, you're grandmaster, that makes sense, now I know why I lost. And what's essentially happening in the text is the Pharisees, even though Jesus has unveiled his disguise through mud and dirt and spit and said, I am Yahweh, I am God, here's multiple pieces of evidence to show it to you, they're looking at the chessboard saying, there's zero chance you know more than us. It's not an intellectual problem, it's a pride problem, it's a spiritual problem. That's why they're not following Jesus. And you, this is still true today. The reason most people do not submit their life to Jesus Christ is not for intellectual reasons like uh, evolution or uh, the problem of evil or these other philosophical concerns. The reason people reject Jesus Christ is the same reason the Pharisees do, and that is self-reliant pride. You know how I know that? Because if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and I want you to know we're really glad you're here, but can I honestly ask you, if you knew, non-Christian, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ is God, 
would that completely change your life? If you knew Jesus Christ was God, would you hand him the keys of the car of your life and say, you drive? If you knew Jesus Christ was God without a shadow of a doubt, would you break up with your girlfriend if you wanted you to? Would you quit your job if you wanted you to? Would you change your sexual preference if he commanded you to? Would you give up that hobby if he asked you to? And most non-Christians I know, they tell me honestly, if, even if I knew that Jesus was God and he asked me to do that, I wouldn't do it. What does that tell you? It's not an intellectual problem, it's a pride problem. It's a submission problem. Most people don't follow Jesus because to follow Jesus and call him master is to call yourself servant. It's to humble yourself. It's to surrender. It's to acknowledge essentially you're a spiritual loser who can't bring anything to the table and you need him completely. It's to say, I'm a blind beggar. And so in this text, the Pharisees, like many people do today, they, they, they drum up any argument they can come up with. They, they, they look for any piece of evidence they can find to avoid the reality that Jesus is God because they want to avoid at all costs humbling themselves under the lordship of Christ so they can keep living the life they want to live that probably isn't satisfying them anyway. And that's what happens here. The Pharisees are, like, Jesus has unveiled his identity, and the Pharisees are examining the chessboard, saying there's no way this guy from Nazareth is God because he would not heal on the Sabbath, like our rules say. He would have overthrown Rome like we think he should. He would be more interested in us than he would in this blind beggar. I mean, it makes no sense you're God. And so they don't start an discussion, they start an inquisition of the blind man, trying to prove that he wasn't healed and that Jesus isn't God. And so the, blind, the Pharisees then go to the blind man's parents and begin to interrogate them, verse 19. Of course this is a ruse, right? Like Jesus set this up. And so they ask the blind man's parents, is this blind man, formerly blind man, your son, who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? Like, you got, you got paid off to do a trick, right? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And verse 22 is super depressing. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. These are not the best parents. They're more concerned about the social implications of their son being healed by Jesus than they're rejoicing that their son's been healed. Don't ask our son. We want to be associated with Jesus because our son is associated with Jesus. And if we get associated with Jesus, we'll be kicked out of the synagogue, which is the center of the social community in the first century. And just a side point, don't be surprised if Jesus heals you and your parents are not supportive or even hostile to the implications of that healing. It happened to this blind man. So the Pharisees start another part of their investigation. Okay, that obviously didn't work. It wasn't a ruse. Verse 24, they go back to the blind man and continue their inquisition and ask him more questions. And the formerly blind man says again, I don't know how it happened. Verse 25, he answered, whether Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, now I see. I mean, this guy would fail every theological exam that exists. The blind man has no idea what the Trinity is. He's never been to RCC 101. He's not in a gospel community. He just knows Jesus is the solution to his problems. And you know what? That's enough. I mean, let that encourage you. If you're here this morning and you've been a part of RCC for a little bit and you're intimidated by the amount of 
well-schooled theologians in our church, and there are many of them, you may be like a brand new non-Christian or Christian who's just checking things out. You may know more Beyonce lyrics than you do Bible verses. Can I just tell you, we're glad you're here. And all you need to know is that Jesus is the answer to your need, and that's enough right now. He'll give you the rest. And you actually might be at a spiritual advantage because you recognize that only he can satisfy your spiritual needs and you're not relying on your own knowledge or self to meet them. Tim Keller says that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. Even if you have a weak faith in the great healer this morning, that is enough to heal you. And so verse 26, the Pharisees continue and say to the blind men, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The blind man answered them, I told you already, and you won't listen. Why do you want to keep hearing this? Do you also want to become his disciples? Oh, they didn't like that. Us? Follow Jesus? You may be his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses, they say. Me, Jesus? I got accepted into Johns Hopkins. I don't need Jesus. I have a 4.0. I make six figures on a Tuesday. Like, I'm good. I'm a good person already. Have you seen my kids? Have you seen how well-behaved they are uh, when they're in public? <laughs> have you seen my marriage outside of the therapy sessions? Have you seen how good my life looks? I don't need Jesus. I'm good. In verse 34, they scorn at the, at the blind man. They say to the beggar, you were born in utter sin. Basically, you're in this situation because you've sinned. That's why you're blind. Pfft, we're not going to listen to you. What do you have to teach us? And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast out this beggar. Having found the beggar, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? I mean, this guy basically knows nothing. Who is Jesus again? I just know I need him. Can't even see him, basically. This guy's unimpressive. He's clueless. Jesus says to him, verse 34, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you now. The beggar said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This word worship means the beggar literally fell prostrate on his face before Jesus Christ. Surrendered his entire life. And the text ends with a few verses that are key to understanding the point of the entire chapter. If you look at verse 39, Jesus summarizes these two groups in this whole scene. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard these things and said to him, Are we blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Basically, you have access to the Old Testament, the Scriptures, and you still do not see me. You're guiltier than everyone else. Translation, you're spiritually blind. And what we have to understand is that all of Jesus' miracles are communicating something important to God's people. You know, the book of John says that all the books in the world could not hold all that Jesus said and did. So whatever is recorded in John's book or anything in the Bible, any miracle that's written down is there for a reason, to communicate a reality of the kingdom of God. Just as the feeding of the 5,000 
uh, communicates Jesus' ability to deal with our spiritual hunger. The healing of this blind man in John 9 is symbolizing Jesus' ability to deal with our spiritual blindness. And Jesus is essentially saying here that the paradox of all this is this blind man can actually spiritually see who I am, but you people who, are, who can see, who have access to all the Old Testament, you spiritually have no idea who I am. Because their eyes are, are connected to their heart, and their heart is closed off to neediness and dependence upon God. And the question I have for us as we reflect on humility in John 9 is, do you, do I have the heart of this blind man? Would you say you have the posture of a blind beggar by the pool, dependent on Jesus for your every need, knowing he came to save you because you were born blind and you did not go to him? And I don't know, man. I've been in church for a while. And in American Christianity, I just don't think we posture ourselves like that very often. I feel like most Christians I know, including myself at times, often are more likely to feign strength than we are to admit and unveil our weakness. Because we get rewarded for it. The minute I tell you I need a counselor or I sinned, you, we, we start looking down on each other. And the minute I say, hey, look at my kid, she just got baptized. Or I, I memorized Ephesians. Or I, I'm going to plant a church. Like, whoa, you must be awesome. We are often rewarded for seeming like we have all the answers. But our job, according to John 9, isn't to have the answers. It's to point to the guy who does. And so, you have two options when it comes to your faith. You can operate out of weakness and trembling and blindness and need like the beggar by the pool, or you can act like you're a beast who has an answer to every question, God's gift to the people around you. And the sad reality is, if you come to Jesus with that proud God's gift posture, Jesus will condemn you and oppose you, the Bible says. But if you come to him aware of how spiritually blind you really are, not just to be saved once for all, but every moment of every day, like, I can't see a thing without him, that's when he wants you and accepts you and receives you and uses you. And something I've learned in ministry, I mean, the great irony of the text in John 9 is that a blind man who doesn't know anything is more used by Jesus than the Pharisees who have the entire Old Testament memorized. And people I've found, especially lost people, would rather follow and learn from a blind man who's been healed than a guru who has all the answers. Which are you? And you know how I can tell? You know how you can tell which one you are when it comes to blind man, Pharisee, guru, blind man? How do you react when you fail? How do you react when you fail as a mom? How do you react when you fail as a business person? How do you react when you fail as a Christian in sin? And when you become devastated by your failure, it's because you're living by the facade that you're awesome and Jesus has just helped you a little bit. And you're assuming, I should be succeeding, I should be competent, I should get this right. This doesn't make sense, this outcome in my life. And it devastates you 
because I'm supposed to be strong. To be a Christian is to be strong, right? I dealt with this this week. I was uh, training a couple of our residents on fundraising, and, and I felt like I didn't answer a couple questions really well, and I'm like, gosh, I should have got that right. And I'm thinking, why do I think I have all the answers? I mean, as pastors and Christians, we're constantly beating ourselves up thinking, why didn't I do better? And what happens if, if you happen to succeed, which we do. I mean, this church is full of some of the most successful people I've ever met. I, I was in a group of three of you the other day, and all three of you had PhDs, and I'm like, I have my master's, I'm a loser. Like, you guys are so successful. And if you are successful as a Christian or as a human being, what happens so often is we become Pharisees and we get puffed up and we start to look down on people who don't have it as good as we are because we think, I got myself this success. God helped a little bit. And I just, we just see here that God opposes that mindset. And if you, would, if you and I <laughs> would operate out of this posture of, I have nothing to offer God other than my sin. And the fact that I'm even in this room right now is sheer grace. I should be at a mosque right now. When you fail, what will happen is failure will just become a beautiful reminder that Jesus came to this pool and sought me out and gave me spite even when I didn't deserve it or was looking for it. Failure will just press you into the gift of God's grace. We'll just remind you of it. That when we were at our very depths, Jesus went to those depths to save us. And if he loved me then, he won't stop loving me now, even though I just screwed up. So the exhortation here is humility. Don't think you've got it together or you've anyone to impress or you can't be honest about your flaws. Be like the beggar. I need help just getting to the pool. We have each been born with a spiritual blindness that only Jesus Christ can heal. And the good news is that this blindness is not so deep and incurable that Jesus Christ cannot heal it. He can. But you have to first acknowledge that you're blind, that you're needy, that you're broken. And only he can heal you. This is called in the Christian faith the doctrine of total depravity. I call this the, the Taylor Swift doctrine. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. That's the total depravity, basically. Uh, I just blessed you so much with that, I know. <laughs> but basically, total depravity is saying that sin is so pervasive in me. I am so naturally wicked there is such a chasm between me and God that any attempt I make to bridge that chasm is failed, is fruitless. And the entire world is trying to make themselves righteous or acceptable or pleasing to God and others by trying to bridge that gap through their athletic performance or through their career accomplishments or through their GPA or through their reputation or through their community service or even through their Bible knowledge. But the the doctrine of total depravity teaches us there is nothing that can bridge that gap other than Jesus Christ, the bridge. And we have to throw ourselves on him to get across to God. And nothing in this world gives you a head start other than humility, brokenness, need. And what we need this morning is not just to memorize a few verses, though that's helpful. What we need is a new heart. We need new eyes. 
And the great irony of Christianity is that we are not saved by being impressive. We are saved by collapsing into an honest acknowledgement of how unimpressive we really are. And throwing ourselves on Jesus. We are weak, we are blind, we are hungry, and we need Christ. And the only material God works with is nothing. And you might be here this morning, not a Christian, and say, that's a little much. I mean, humans have made a lot of progress. Uh, We have things like civil rights. We have democracy. We have queso. I mean, humans are doing pretty good. We have things like electric cars. Do, Do you not realize that even human attempts to do good have led to human destruction and evil? In fact, our desire to build electric vehicles, to make the world a better place, to make it green, did you know it skyrocketed demand for cobalt around the world? And cobalt is often found in Africa. And there are mines in, in the Congo filled with child slaves mining cobalt so we can make the world a better place with our electric cars. I mean, even human beings' desire to do good and to be good and make the world a better place ends up turning into evil. We don't have any idea what we're doing when it comes to ethics. Ten years ago, you could be arrested for holding a, a weed, and a couple months ago, our governor of Maryland just made a fortune investing in weed. We don't know what we're doing. What do we do? We go to the healer, John 9. Jesus stands ready to heal those who put down their good works, who put down everything they would boast in themselves in and throw themselves on him and admit their spiritual need. Like the old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. And every other religion in the world throws a life raft to drowning men. Every other religion, Islam, here's five pillars. Do these, God will accept you. Hindus, here's karma. Do this and you won't become a worm. Tony Robbins, here's how to unleash the power within you. Do these five things. Even Catholics, here's the sacraments. Do these and God will love you. I mean, it's life rafts to drowning people, hoping they get it. Only Jesus, only Jesus dives headfirst from the safety of the boat into the depths of our sin and depravity to grab drowning men and women and carry them to the golden shore as long as we will surrender to his benevolent sovereignty. And we are healed forever. And so the, the invitation of John 9 is humility. Humble yourself, friend. If God left your life, would everything change? If you, have you, did you come here this morning and say, I can't do a thing on my own. He's got to heal me. I'm not a good enough husband. He's got to heal me. I'm not a good enough employee. He's got to heal me. I'm not a perfect non-sinner. He's got to heal me. Or did you come in here thinking, oh, I'm doing pretty good. To the non-Christian, all you need is need. All you need is need. Do you have it this morning? And he is more willing to save and heal than we are to repent. And Christian, are you operating out of the realities of your faith? Total depravity. The same faith that saves us, sustains us. Are you being sustained by the reality you're a sinner needing the healer? Are you okay if no one here is impressed by you? Are you okay if you're not invited to the party? Are you okay if you look like a fool? This happened to me when I was in Israel uh, two months ago. You know, I was teaching, preaching to a bunch of pastors and we were traveling around Israel, and they, they have these things called whisper mics, so you put in your ear, and the tour guide speaks, and everyone can hear it. 
And so I'm at the front of the line, the tour, and I'm asking the tour guide, the, ar- the architect, uh, arch- uh, archaeologist questions, and I asked him the dumbest question ever. I asked him, was Jesus the oldest son in his family? And um, I thought about it for a second. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, the virgin birth. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Jesus was the oldest son in his family. I cannot believe I asked that question. Oh, well, God's grace, right? Come to find out, everyone could hear on the whisper mic. So here I am, the pastor, the teacher, asking the dumbest question ever, and one of the women in the tour came up to me, she's like, aren't you a pastor? I hope you're not teaching this at your church. She said it funny. I mean, it wasn't, she was joking with me, right? But when you're the blind man by the pool who's just been healed by Jesus, you can laugh at yourself and say, that was so dumb, wasn't it? He saved me. I can't believe it. But if you're a Pharisee, who thinks, I need to impress people, I need to impress God, who thinks, come to me and I'll help you see. I know stuff about economics, I know stuff about the war in Ukraine, I'm good at my job, I'm a good husband, i got everything. When you fail, it'll be devastating. Are you operating out of a place of humility, friend? And then the second word, I'm, this is going to be brief. Oh man, this, this, this word hope in this text ministers to me so much, I pray it does to you too. As we close thinking about John 9 and this blind man and Jesus healing him, can you imagine with me, just close your eyes for a moment and imagine with me the suffering of this blind man. I mean, if you have your eyes closed, this is what he saw his entire life. I want you to imagine with your eyes closed, being stuck as a six-year-old in your house, being unable to go play with the friends in in the neighborhood, and just being stuck hearing the other little kids laugh and play and dance and sing and and goof off while you're stuck in one place. I want you to imagine with your eyes closed never seeing the faces of the people that you love most. Only being able to feel the contours of their face. Just, to, just only able to imagine what they might look like. And this man is probably like in his 20s or his 30s. Imagine sitting by this pool as a beggar Knowing, thinking, God hates me and this is why he's punishing me so much. His parents don't love him or want him or aren't helping him. He has no social standing before society. He has no job, so he can't contribute in any way. He's reliant on his every need to be met. I mean, think about the amount of suffering this blind man endured for decades And I think the worst suffering, again, is this thought of the reason this is happening to me is because God's angry with me. That was the predominant thought of the day. You can open your eyes and... That's, again, why the disciples asked this question of Jesus, whose sin caused this man this much suffering? Was it his parents sinning or was it him? And the reason they ask that question is because rabbis in the first century taught that if you as a pregnant mother worshipped pagans while you were pregnant, you were participating your, your son or daughter in the womb with that pagan worship, and then the child would be punished. Some other rabbis taught that your child could even sin in the womb and thus be born blind. Punished for sin. 
So the underlying presupposition here is the retribution principle, that individual sin always leads to individual suffering. And if maybe you're feeling this this morning, if you have a hard life, you, you ask yourself, what did I do wrong? Why is God doing this to me? If you're failing, it's because you failed. I mean, we do this all the time when we see other people, right? You see a homeless person or a poor person, and you think, well, if they weren't lazy, they wouldn't be homeless. They wouldn't be poor. Or you, you see somebody who's struggling at school or struggling at the company you work at, and you think, well, if they just did what I did, they would be succeeding like I am. Or we see someone who loses their marriage and think, well, they must be really tough to live with, and it's probably their fault they got divorced. And the, because we, we reap what we sow, right? God is a judge, and he judges with punishment. This is the same thing that Job's friends said to Job when Job was suffering. He lost his kids, he lost his land, he lost his money, he lost everything. And Job's friends say, well, what did you do wrong that God is punishing you so much for it? So it's definitely what you need your friend to say when you're struggling, right? This is such a common human question that it's asked again in Luke 13 when a tower falls in Siloam, the same place the pool of Siloam is, is at. A tower fell on 18 Galileans, and the disciples in Luke 13 asked Jesus, why did God let this tower fall on these Galileans? Was it because they were worse sinners? Same question. What sin? Why is God punishing them? We blame suffering on sin. And yes, that can sometimes be the case. But can I just comfort you with the healer's words here? What does Jesus say? Was it this man's sin or his parents' sin? Jesus says, neither. It was not his sin or his parents' sin. It's what? So the mighty works of God can be displayed in his life. Did you know in the book of Isaiah, Old Testament book, 700 years before John, 700 years before this, this blind man was even a cell in his mother's womb, it was prophesied that the Messiah would come and he would heal the blind. Something unprecedented throughout the scriptures up to this point. That's why, in fact, the Pharisees say in John 9, verse 32, in this text, that never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. It's never been done. Why? Because it was said that only the Messiah would be able to do it. Here's the point. This man, born blind, suffering as a child to a teenager, to a young adult, to a man, was born blind to fulfill a 700-year-old messianic prophecy. God determined before this man even existed, 700 years before this man even existed, that this blind man is going to be the instrument that reveals the Messiah's glory as the healer of the world. 20, maybe 30 years of suffering, so that for this one moment, Jesus could come say, I'm the healer you need, and show the world this truth. It was done to display the mighty works of God. About six or seven years ago, my mom was diagnosed at 53 years old with early onset Alzheimer's disease. If you don't know, early onset Alzheimer's is a disease that shrinks your brain until you forget every detail of what happens around you and you forget the people you love until you eventually die, oftentimes from suffocation or something else horrendous. 
And people, I mean, it's been about six years, and uh, people ask me all the time, how's your mom doing? How's your mom doing? How's your mom doing? Any updates on your mom? And I, I love their heart. I know they mean well, but I never know how to answer that question because my mom right now is basically lifeless as a vegetable on a nursing home bed, reliant on people to help her go to the bathroom, feed her. And if she has a need, all she can do is beg or moan to communicate she has a need. And when I come in the room, she, has no, she doesn't even know there's a person in the room. She's completely forgotten who I am. And there's no hope she'll ever get better. She's gone until she dies. How's she doing? Um, the same. And uh, I've, I've told you a few of this before, but the day before, uh, the day I graduated seminary, which again was about six years ago, my mom had just found out about this diagnosis, which is a death sentence, a slow, cruel, unavoidable death sentence. And we're out to lunch after the graduation ceremony. This is right before we planted this church, actually. And we're leaving a restaurant, and she stops me in the middle of the lobby of this restaurant in front of a bunch of people. It's a public place. And um, she doesn't go outside when everyone else goes outside. She stops and grabs me by the shoulders. And she puts her head in my chest, and she starts sobbing and weeping. And I, I didn't know what to say. I mean, she's just unavoidably, uncontrollably losing it. I'd never seen her cry like that. In the middle of a restaurant, too. And um, she finally gets the, the energy, the, the strength to say a few words. And you know what she says to me? She says, Adam, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I want to be a grandma. Why is God doing this? I don't want to die. Why would he let this happen to me? I didn't, I didn't know what to say. Here's what I do know. If my mom, begging and moaning, unaware of her needs, like this blind man, were laying helplessly by the pool of Siloam, with a shrunken brain and no awareness of where she is or who she is, when Jesus Christ, the healer, walks by that pool, he doesn't say, it's your fault. He doesn't say, you should have eaten more vegetables. Or you shouldn't have looked at that much porn. It, it's, your, it's your fault you got cancer. It's your fault you have depression. It's your fault your kids are so tough to raise. He doesn't say that. He looks you in the eye and says, this is the result of the sin of the world. And watch how I display my glory and overcome sin's power through my majesty. And I, I don't know what you're suffering from this morning. Maybe it's someone who abandoned you. Maybe it's a job that's beating you up like crazy. Maybe like me, you had a dad who said, you're not a good enough son, and he left. 
Jesus would stand by the pool with you and say, it's not your fault, son. It's not your fault, daughter. And somehow, centuries ago, maybe even 700 years ago, God ordained that suffering for you so he could display his glory through you. And let me just tell you, it is not a stretch to say that this very church exists because my dad abandoned me as a 12-year-old kid. So whatever you're suffering from, friend, take a moment and sit by the pool of Siloam and wait for Jesus to come to you. And when he comes, maybe even surrender to him and let him heal you. And say, use this pain, use this sin and suffering to display your glory through me, Jesus. And no, 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 friend, that one day he is coming back and the whole world will be the pool of Siloam. And he will wipe away all cancer. He will wipe away all de- dementia, all depression, all forms of pain and suffering. And we will be the humble fools he saved just because he loves saving humble fools. And so in the meantime, let's recognize we are screw-ups, man. Blind beggars who need him. We'll be humble, and let's be hopeful, because even the evil things that happen to us because of other people's sin, he's going to use for his glory, and he's going to come and end it one day, and we have hope. And let's sit by the pool of Siloam. Jesus is a healer. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, We live in a culture that so desperately wants to present ourselves as strong and competent and needing of nothing. Remind us of the spiritual reality that we are so broken and helpless and only when you come and heal us are we made new, are we worthwhile before God. And I pray for the non-Christian in the room that they would Stop making excuses. Stop the grand inquisition that's really a farce and submit their entire life to you. And for the Christian, God, may the same faith that saved them sustain them. May failure not blow them down. May it rise them up. May it be a gift to remind them of your grace that you would love them anyway. Help them know that they are shielded and protected by your perfect life and substitutionary death. Give them joy this morning that the most beautiful and and desirable being in the entire universe wants them. Jesus wants them. He's pursuing them. And may we be a church of humble beggars pointing to the great Savior who's ready to heal. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.